darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. The ritual of the Mark of the Beast is a magic rite for invoking the energies of the Aeon, known as Liber Quintus Vel Reguli, which translates from Latin as Book Five or the Little Prince. Its appended commentary offers deeper insight into Crowley's method for piercing beyond good and evil. Join us for a deep dip into this elucidating text. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. All right, today we are looking at actually a ritual, and it comes with some commentary as well. So we're looking at Liber V, Vel Reguli, um, popularly called Liber V, because it's easy enough to make that mistake, but uh, it's uh, Roman numeral V. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh how did you get a chance? I was performing it a little bit. Did you get a, a chance to perform this ritual at all in the last? Actually, two, three yes. Weeks? I because I, uh, we initially talked about this a couple months ago. That came up as a potential topic amongst some other topics we were discussing, and I started getting in the habit of doing it daily since then. So I've been doing it for a while, which is nice. Uh, yeah. How about your, yourself? I know you didn't get to it quite so. I. Uh, it's been about a week. Doing it out of the book, which is not so good, and then um, once I knew it, I had I did it astrally for about three four days, and then just in the last week, I've been performing it live regularly um, in front of a studio audience, <laughs> <laughs> record broadcast live before a studio audience. The uh, and I wanted to say here, this says the the magician should devise for himself a definite technique of destroying evil. The essence of such a practice will consist in training the mind and body to confront things which cause fear, pain, and disgust, shame, and the like. So is that the goal of the ritual, to help you confront? <laughs> uh, Basically, I can't remember who's, uh, which branch of moral philosophy this is, but there's, uh, there's, there's one branch where people talk a lot about things that are preferred versus not preferred, like yeah. relativizing evil in that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, is this a ritual for uh, evoking things which are not preferred? Yeah, confronting the uh, apparent evil. Did you manage to get any evil? <laughs> did you, you <laughs> Did any evil befall you in the last month? No, I didn't have any such experiences, although um, that's... We're going to get into that because that's the text that uh, comes with this. The commentary on it um, seems to go... He even acknowledges that it seems to become tangential at some point. But he's very much talking about the idea of kind of like exposure therapy mm -hmm. for dealing with perceived evil. The idea of things that are evil. I had a family member have surgery 
And then as a consequence of the surgery, had to go and get tested for like some form of cancer. And then that test came back negative. I also had a family member lose their driver's license. And as I said to you, my spouse is sick this week, which means I've Mm. uh, spent more of my week off hanging out with my son than I might have otherwise. I love hanging out with my son, but you know, you get a day off. You want to take a day off. Uh, I'm fine. (laughs) I had a nice breakfast this morning. My last uh, anatomy exam, I did better than I thought. I don't know what's going on. Like, it's (laughs) there seems to be a buffer between, like, whenever I do money magic, my wife gets a raise. Ah. (laughs) And, like, now I've been spent the last month evoking evil. And and it's, (laughs) it's I, I feel like there's a barrier between me and the results of whatever magic I perform, which is not what one would prefer. I mean, it's nice not to have had a bunch of evil befall me. Oh, also this, uh, the bank, there's this, um, is it called Silicon Bank just oh, yeah. collapsed? Yeah. And people in the, it, which is not a big bank. So in a way it's not a big deal, but they were doing lots of tech investing. And, uh, and so that's going to have, uh, consequences because people are going to be, you know, there, there may be runs on other small banks and, you know, we could be moving into, uh, we were already kind of moving towards a, a, a medium scale financial crisis and this could just expedite things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crowley and Newberg tried to take credit for the first wo- world war after the Paris working. <laughs> so so I don't think there's any reason we can't say that this is, uh, this is something we would have not preferred. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, uh, no serious negative. Con- I've, in fact, I feel having a, just a lovely time. <laughs> well, you know, now that you're mentioning it, uh, um, I mean, first, just before I go into my own anecdotes, uh, I will point out that the very first thing that we have stated in this ritual uh, is not that it's a ritual about evoking evil or anything like that, but that it's an AA publication in Class D, being the ritual of the Mark of the Beast, an incantation proper to invoke the energies of the Aeon of Horus, adapted for the daily use of the magician of whatever grade. So as far as the commentary applies to the ritual itself, um, that's an interesting thought or an interesting perspective on it to think um, that perhaps this is the idea of the ritual is to confront evil. Uh, it almost seemed, I didn't, I didn't even, it didn't click into me that way because I was thinking, I mean, I was thinking this was already just pretty much invoking the energies of the new Aeon, the Aeon of Horus, and, uh, the rituals laid out very much with all that kind of symbolism. The main, the main qualm somebody might have where, uh, in the ritual proper, it seems to have anything evil is the averse pentagrams, mm-hmm. which there's a strong association with that being evil. And, um, well, for certain people, of course, anyway. And, uh, in the commentary, that'll be kind of interesting to think of it in terms of specifically applying to the ritual in that relation. So that'll be interesting to discuss. Well, I was already thinking of it that way, just because the commentary is so, so much about moral relativism. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also I looked up, I was trying to find things about the ritual. I was looking for the date for the ritual and as usual, I couldn't find it. Um, But what I did find is people giving anecdotes about their own experience of practicing it. And uh, man, there's some desperate people out there (laughs) doing magic, man. It seems like the, the whole culture is 
just uh, <laughs> anyway it's the magician the lifestyles of magicians is not a movie i want to watch but uh but yeah it seems like they were just living in bad circumstances anyway and then going through the per- process of of practicing this ritual daily just made everything kind of uh, crash really hard so but Ram not used for to me say, uh you don't want to practice magic when you're desperate yeah being desperate is not the time to practice magic Unfortunately, that's what so many people tend to do, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think Ram's thing was that you want to get the practice out of the way. You know, like you don't want to practice marksmanship when you're desperate either. You want to be a marksman. Yeah. And and then if you need marksmanship, then that skill is available to you. But you don't want to... So you want to be practicing magic all the time. And then when you're desperate, you have tools in your toolbox to so in other words it. you're in shape but you don't want to suddenly lifting weights because you're sick you don't want to <laughs> meet a new demon for the first time uh not with no idea of who what his personality is like yeah. and then try to get him to run errands for you when the stakes are absolute that maximum. does sound like pretty much the same people doing both things though so. <laughs> 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 but um um, no, I mean as far as uh anything that I've noticed anecdotally in my own life um no, it's actually been, it really has felt like invoking the energies of the Aeon. And if anything, you know, you can think of it on a psychological level of just permeating your own consciousness with Thelemic ideas and archetypes. And then uh, in personal life, uh, my sister, actually, you mentioned somebody uh, with an operation and that sort of thing and cancer related. And my sister, unfortunately, ended up with uh, uh, breast cancer. And so she had to have the operation there. And um, after the operation, she uh, went back to get assessed for whether they needed to do chemo or they had to do radiation treatment or whatnot. And uh, the doctor was basically saying, well it's gone. It's entirely gone. So, um, and my mother was telling me that, uh, this doctor was saying pretty much, okay, it'd be interesting to find out if this was due to the pills that you were taking for it. Um, because if we can identify it as being related to the pills, then that'll be kind of groundbreaking. It'll add, we'll add this to the medical books. And if it wasn't the pills, then a miracle, (laughs) which I, I was blown away by the idea that a doctor, Used that <laughs> as a legitimate let's like, just, suggestion. Let's just chalk this up to miracle. <laughs> did, did you know what the pills were? No, I don't. Maybe we shouldn't I can say find that out. I'm sure, but uh, yeah, let's not say it on the air because we don't want to seem like we're recommending. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't see the thing is we, I didn't. Uh, dis- we haven't discovered the cure for cats. Yeah, <laughs> um, big pharma has, and they haven't let it out. But yeah, so <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> I am willing to go there with you. <laughs> but no, I was going to say, um, uh, I didn't actually, like, until just discussing this just now with you, I I didn't relate that to, in any way, shape, or form to the idea of practicing Reguli for the past couple of months. In fact, if anything, it was very on the nose with some of the Enochian stuff that I was... Uh, uh, preparing for. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, there was a, in the, um, in the watchtowers, there's, um, a set of angels that are for healing and that sort of thing. And if you use, um, certain letters, you get healing 
that's what you would use for going for healing. And if you add one letter on, it's like uh, it expounds on it so that it's like miraculous healing. And I was very conscious of that. I was like, oh, I got to try and do that for my sister before she ends up going for having to go for the operation and everything. And then uh, um, I didn't have the time to get everything together. At least uh, I probably could have streamlined and just jumped into doing some watchtower stuff. But I've been putting together the the holy table and the the uh, sigilla the sigillum de, de emath and all that sort of thing. And uh, I hadn't gotten all of it together in time. And uh, so, but when I ended up finding this out and the term miracle coming up in that way, in that context, just kind of blew me away. And I was kind of secretly, uh, I did that. <laughs> but it would, of course, is just the, the regular madness that you can easily buy into when you're, when you're into magic and you start seeing stuff that you can equate as some kind of a result. My actual take on it is just sort of like, does it matter as I, long as she's okay? I've been listening to Those Conspiracy Guys, which is an Irish Irish podcast about conspiracies. And uh, by way of coincidence, they uh, sub-referenced from a sub-reference to Bill and Ted this week. And we're talking about how, you know, when we get out of prison, we have to remember to go back in time and steal my father's keys and put them here by the, <laughs> on the windowsill so that, uh, so that we can get out of prison. And then they go and check the windowsill and the keys are there because uh, time is a flat circle or whatever. Anyway, just because your sister's better doesn't mean you're not allowed to perform that ritual anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I would get, I would get to it. <laughs> this is actually this is the the Pay exact mentality I had was that uh, okay that's that this is exactly how Crowley talks about magic and theory and practice, um, and this is how he talks about magic in magic and theory and practice. He talks about the idea that time doesn't seem to be such a straightforward and linear cause and effect when you're dealing with magic because. You end up with things like, um, in the anecdotes he's using, it's the equivalent of saying, like, I perform a ritual to find out about what's going on with uh, um, my case, court case that I, or, no, that doesn't make any sense, but, you know, <laughs> I, I perform a ritual to find out what's going on with so-and-so in a different country who I haven't been in touch with, and then suddenly the same, you know, right after the ritual uh, letter shows up that would have had to have been mailed previously, and it happens to be, you know, synchronistic for exactly what you're doing the ritual for and all this yeah. sort of things, so... Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll do this out of obligation. I'll, <laughs> I'll follow through with it regardless. So just as good form. Uh, what do you think of this, uh, this commentary? I'm excited about it. I feel like we get to do some work today. Yeah, this is a really good one, actually. Uh, this is the kind of thing that is really worthy of a deep dip. I would. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is why the pop filters, by the way. <laughs> deep dip. Perfect. Uh, I, I totally abandoned my train of thought. Look, uh, we um, I, at first I was worried that doing so much uh, stuff by the same philosopher on the same subjects uh, was going to get a little bit samey, but we get to do some Kabbalah stuff uh, mm. this week uh, and talk about maybe a little bit as a consequence what the gematria work is actually for 
that you know uh, you can apply it to uh, magical evocation uh, for verifying spirits and stuff as we talked about before. But really, um, traditionally, it's for biblical interpretation. And so here we have some scriptural interpretation. He uses he's applying these numbers to the book of the law to try and understand what that book means. Mm-hmm. Um, we get uh, some equivocations, which is unusual for Crowley because we've been talking about. Um, last time we brought up the idea of Tantra and talked a little bit about what's not preferred. And, mm. uh, and here he equivocates on that in a way that's, that's unlike him. And so that's cool. And then, uh, we get a deepening of some of the ontology stuff that we talked about on our very first conversation about, uh, the Tao Te King. So mm. there's, um... There's 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 lots we can do, and it's uh, you know the last couple essays we looked at were kind of um, circumstantial, like we were doing his, not not like history stuff, like about circumstance, and now we get to we get to bite into some deeper ideas. So yeah, I'm this should be it. fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, maybe uh, speaking of history, though, we can put this in some context because I do know roughly the details of uh, when this was formulated this ritual which there's a little bit of a mystery going on here because it's uh, 1921 of the vulgar era and uh in in that year apparently according to hb's um Himenius beta's book four uh, in the notes and whatnot there's allusions to the fact that in crowley's diaries there's evidence of earlier stages of this ritual that were actually group formed Okay, so cool. there was actually some interaction, group interaction for the ritual, and that it got edited out after a couple of drafts. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is that um, that year and basically 1921 and 1922 EV, I, from Crowley's diaries, I, I was really uh, inspired to look them up, and uh, I can't find them. And I reached out to some people who uh, have their own lineage of AA in connection, and uh, they were looking into it as well, and uh, seems to be, unless I hear further, seems like those two years are in the OTO archives, and not, you know, not amongst the papers that are floating around on the internet. Yeah, so there's lots of this stuff. Uh, The OTO has um, a large amount of Crowley material, um, and they've been promising sort of complete Crowley diaries to come out uh, for a long, long time, you know. And uh, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so they just they just have stuff. It's not going to be released. Um, we have access to some stuff done by Skinner and some stuff done by Grant, but that's it. So yeah, no, th- those those things are probably extant, um, and there are probably reasons that they're not coming out. Uh, some related to just what a controversial figure Crowley can be and that the OTO is allergic to that, but some probably also related to the fact that all that material is now in the public domain. So as it comes out, if, it, if they put it out, they lose control over it because then anyone can put anything mm. out. And so um, the latest thing is to uh, put this material in people they perceive as like academic experts like give them access to it so that they can can refer to it or use snippets of it and that sort of thing yeah so the tobias churton books which are uh 
uh, forgive me, no good. Uh, um, he has it's access to a lot of that stuff. Keeping his wallets padded, that's the main thing. <laughs> and um, and uh, a few other ones like that. Uh, that's where all this stuff is going. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, having those, particularly those two years of the Cheflu period missing, um, it's easy to let your imagination run a little wild with what they could contain because it's such a fascinating period in particular. Um, so it's fairly frustrating. And I guess the diaries that are available are published by others like Stephen Skinner and uh, uh, Grant and Simmons and that sort of thing. But aside from, of course, Wasserman's... Uh, book on the magical diary that contains some some stuff but uh those and those are being all excerpted from material right. that was already published in the equinox yeah so. um which are very different than crowley's private diaries if you compare the material that he was consciously preparing for publication to uh the material that he just wrote for himself it's mm. uh the contrast is stark but yeah that's where this was originally formulated was in chefalu and uh, it seems like there's also some notes about the Mark of the Beast that is used here as well, um, which was formulated at that time as well when he was in touch with uh, uh, Frater Rahad. Um, it was either at that time specifically or just prior to it or something like that, uh, uh, like they were mailing letters back and forth and that sort of thing. The Mark of the Beast that's used in this ritual, uh, you mean the the sort of like the foreshortened phallus with the right. seven-pointed star around it? Yeah. Uh, embr- embraced, I was going to say, and then forgot embraced by the seven-pointed star. Yeah, actually, the seven-pointed star doesn't hasn't entered the picture yet in this case, but it's actually uh, in the note here that in the letter that's being referred to, it's... Uh, Crowley's actually describing it. Uh, we should have a mark to represent, like the mark of the beast, and uh, and he's describing it as two overlapping circles, with one slightly smaller than the other, and uh, uh, to represent a foreshortened phallus, mm. and uh, and that's pretty much as far as he goes. And he says, "I'll just have to work out the radii of the circles, right? To get the the uh, they should have like." you know, sacred geometry involved in this sort of thing. So last week's talk, or I guess last month's talk, he, we mentioned, uh, the idea of the sun and moon embracing, mm-hmm. becoming, becoming that image. Mm-hmm. Which makes total sense too. When we look at this symbol as being created from the, uh, the Sigma and Tau. So those two are not the Tau, sorry, the Sigma and Theta. Those two letters, so yeah. the sigma representing the moon and the theta representing the sun, or phallus. I am also a star in space, unique and self-existent, an individual essence incorruptible. I am also one soul. I am identical with all and none. I am in all and all in me. I am apart from all and lord of all and one with all. And then further down the page, I am the all, for all that exists for me is necessarily an expression in thought of some tendency of my nature, and all my thoughts are only the letters of my name. I am the one, for all that I am is not the absolute all, and all my all is mine and not another's. Mine who conceive of others like myself in essence and truth, yet unlike in expression and illusion. I am none, 
For all that I am is the imperfect image of the perfect. Each partial phantom must perish in the clasp of its counterpart. Each form fulfill itself by finding its equated opposite and satisfying its need to be the absolute by the attainment of annihilation. Um, again, I've sort of mentioned here a, a few times about this idea of the microcosm and the, the macrocosm and this relationship between the individual who contains all those ideas and then who looks outward at ideas and sees them only by reference to things he already understands, like the fact that as far as you know the cosmos is out there, but your picture of the cosmos is an internal picture because you've never actually seen the whole cosmos and the things you don't know about it are beyond your knowing. But here, that picture is made a little bit more sophisticated um, by talking about I am none for all that I am is an imperfect image of the perfect or I am one for all that I am is not the absolute all. So again, there's some... Uh, we discuss again here how uh, man is God because of his relationship with cosmos, you know, the, the microcosm and the macrocosm, the macrosopropus and the microsopropus. Um, but a stating for the first time that I know of, just a stating of the obvious that there is a, a bigger universe in, in which this is contextualized and like uh, there, there's some nod being given to the naive realist position. <laughs> Whereas, you know, other um, philosophers will talk about uh, God, like Descartes will get everything back by going to God and saying that God could not possibly deceive us. And Kant will get everything, uh, will say that, oh, there is an objective world, but the things in themselves push impressions upon this. Here, Crowley is just, I think, going just to the naive realist position. Of, like, there is a world, we can learn things about it. Um, the more we learn about it, the bigger we get. But this relationship of the individual in the macrocosm, uh, also, that individual is infinitely small compared to like what actually exists, which is how uh, one of the ways we get to uh, the individual as, as not, as nothing, in, mm -hmm. in, in reference to everything else. Yeah, making countenance face countenance. Um, and this commentary is largely focused not so much on the ritual itself, it should be said, but on the word of power, the magical word, lashtal. There's actually five words of power that are used in the ritual itself. Um, we have um, Lashtal, Thelema, Wiao, Agape, and Aum. Now these, uh, the Wiao, as I'm pronouncing it, is uh, I-A-O, or Iao, but Crowley's adjustment to that, where we add a letter at the beginning and the end. And then Aum is your traditional Aum, but with two letters appended to that. And each of these words uh, by Gematria adds to 93. But Lashtal being kind of his magnum opus as far as magical word creation goes, because uh, it specifically uses the keywords of the Book of the Law. Keywords being L, which is Aleph, Lamed, and you can reverse that to be Lo, which is Lamed, Aleph. So that L, 
that hence liberal, which uh, is the key word of the Book of the Law, but also Crowley's discovery of what I mentioned before, the sigma and theta, also being a key. Uh, L is one of the names of God used in the um, the uh, Tanakh, um, and it's pronounced L. But I think in Toronto we 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 have this habit of saying Liber Al Valigas. So if you hear us say Al or L, they mean the same thing. And uh, Lo, yeah, like you say, it's the Hebrew word for no or not, but it's spelt. Uh, Lamad Aleph, and here is given capital L, capital A. So if you hear us accidentally say La, especially mm-hmm. like because the word is Lashtal, or maybe it's Lushtel, I don't know. But uh, yeah, this is the difficulty of it. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not necessarily clear exactly the precise uh, pronunciation that we want to go with, and it's easier, especially for an audio only podcast it's like uh, probably helpful for us to pronounce it lashtal just so that people know what specifically we're referring to but we'll be using probably al and l interchangeably and lo and la interchangeably and when we say al we mean aleph lamad <laughs> or we may say aleph lamad so <laughs> if this gets messy i just want to yeah let, let you know that this is this is what's happening <laughs> um but that also brings up the shht that's in the middle there, which uh, in Hebrew we could give as shin tav. And um, Crowley seems to allude to the idea that it could be also pronounced st uh, as well. So that, again, we could argue for different potential pronunciations. But uh, again, it's a matter of convenience depending on what we're specifically um, referring to, I suppose. So it would be lost l. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Lostel. I kind of like that actually. <laughs> but Lashtal, I think, is probably the most, you know, likely pronunciation that people are going to uh, produce just at a glance. Um, but yes, that's what the commentary is focused on uh, is elaborating on this magical word. It will give it a little bit of a breakdown, and um, all of it is very much related to this idea that on the one side you've got um, the idea of not, and the other side you have the idea of God. And so we have these two ideas balanced, which is really incredibly beautiful because it's it's kind of leaves things tentative at all times and unresolved. Mm-hmm which is a beautiful tension. Uh, yeah, because if it was resolved, that would be uh, the end of the end of creation, <laughs> right? Uh, we go from... Uh, the, I've, I've broken this up into sort of three sections. Uh, the first six paragraphs I've called zero equals two, then paragraph seven through 33... Uh, is the all the details about the word lashtal, and then through to the end, I'm thinking of that as being sort of like the mystery of evil. The, yeah, the mis- <laughs> yeah, sure, the mystery of evil is good enough. Um, it seems like very that whole section seems like a great commentary to portions of uh, Liber uh, Libellum, which we looked at. Oh yeah, yeah, sure it does because we talked about uh, how each. Um, of the secret goodnesses had a corresponding evil. And mm. so, um, so, but the reason we start off with, uh, 
a, a very good and kind of finessed, nuanced version of Crowley's zero equals two formula is that um, each of these three mini words that makes up our um, magical word of power here is is going to be an a, a, an expression of a mode of that formula. Um, in fact, he'll say here that, oh yeah, here it is. Uh, in L is the or God arranged for countenance to behold countenance by establishing itself as an equilibrium. A, the one not conceived as L, the two not, and L is the son, daughter, Horus, Horprocrates, just as L is the father, mother, set Isis. Herein, then, is the tetragrammaton once more, but expressed in identical equations in which every term is perfect in itself as a mode of not. So this is... Uh, this is a version of the four-letter name. It means the same thing, kind of father, mother, son, daughter, creation coming into being, but it resolves itself to that kind of primal zero. Crowley uses the word not in here a lot. He's referring to uh, the veils of not, the ion, ion sof, uh, which is like the primordial creation the primordial non-creation before the tree of life comes into being. Uh, um, that's why he uses the word not, but like it might as well be, uh, not might as well be, but it might be clearer if we say nothing in some of these, these places. Um, yeah. And I'm understanding, I'm, uh, I'm assuming that uh, where he says in L, this the in quotes or God in quotes arranges for countenance to behold countenance. I'm assuming that he's referring to L as being the Arabic word equivalent to the, when he's referring to that. Oh, okay. Um, I break that up incidentally. I don't know what Hebrew for the is. Ha. Ha? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, sometimes Crowley is making mistakes, and sometimes you just don't know enough to understand what he's saying. <laughs> that's the thing. Very hard to a know. A lot of the time, more. this is a good. This that's another thing about this paper is that it's very dense and very. He's like, I wouldn't be surprised if he was doing cocaine until two in the morning writing this, <laughs> you know, because he's just in a whirlwind of passion writing through this. So well, that would explain why he equivocates in the way that he does, mm -hmm. because he talks about how, uh, you know, you need to smell one thing that you don't like until you like it but that you shouldn't sniff like arsenic or something in the same way because it'll kill you yeah. and knowing how uh how much crowley kind of disliked cocaine at some of the times when he was <laughs> still addicted to it could be an excuse for you know mm -hmm. it's like you gotta you gotta love cocaine until you hate cocaine and then hate cocaine until you love cocaine and then give up cocaine because it really is <laughs> bad for you yeah, that exposure therapy again. And then maybe don't do it at all. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, I guess, because uh, when he's talking about this idea of tetragrammaton, he's referring to the the letter L as it appears on the beginning of the word and at the end of the word. And so the first L being the mother, father, and then, which interestingly he equates to Isis and Set, not to Isis and Osiris, mm -hmm. as one might presume. And then the other, at the end of the other end of the word, we have the other L, which he's equating to um, the son daughter, which in this case he's referring to uh, Rahur Kweet and Hurpar Krat, as Hurpar Krat sort of being the equivalent of the daughter. Um, I find, just to throw this out there as my own personal uh, 
um, thing. I I noticed uh, years ago like that uh, the lambda of the Greek alphabet is uh, really beautifully applied here, just because of the fact that you put a lambda together with an alpha, and they overlap. The only difference being the crossbar of the alpha, um, and it's just a great little meditative tool that you can apply to this word and to the just the keyword L as well. Just throwing that out there. That's so cool. The the it it's it, is neglected in some of these absolutely yeah. uh, traditions. Everybody loves the gematria, but looking at the um, looking at the Greek alphabet is 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 so helpful, and I suppose I should do more of it. Although. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to equivocate on that. I suppose <laughs> I should do more of that. I feel all of a sudden that perhaps we've gotten very deep in the weeds very quickly. Do you want to back up and go through this a little bit more? Uh, have you anything to to say about sort of in a general uh, sense about the 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 idea of the zero equals two equation before we start saying how the word expresses it? What's your um, what's your feeling about this? zero equals two thing. Uh, well, that's one of the interesting things I think we can maybe try and do here is to, um, the difficulty of this paper is having to go through it in a linear fashion because it's difficult to suss everything out just going through it front to back because by the time you get to the end, you've gone, you know, you're a little bit turned around and you've forgotten the beginning again. So doing this deep dive is really great for giving a little bit more perspective on everything that's going on here because it's really quite beautiful. If we look at the zero equals two formula, the idea is that um, we are like zero equals two is the magical formula and two equals zero is the mystical formula. So the magical formula being working your way out to the other, whereas the mystical is working your way into the not. Uh, that's probably an oversimplification in some ways, but let's go with it. Uh, and here, um, what's happened in these first six paragraphs is that you, the, the, the subject, has created the universe by creating yourself. You know, you've come into being and divided uh, the, the world by, this, by the fact of your existence into a, a kind of dualist universe, uh, the, the sort of fundamental self-not-self dualism. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so I, I can't remember who gets to be the negative principle, but I think the individual is negative and the cosmos is positive. So you become minus one and the world becomes <laughs> positive one. And, uh, well, the and, nice thing about it is they're so ba perfectly balanced that it actually is arbitrary. And <laughs> and that for Crowley is the is the two. And so the the way this is this is a magical principle is um, is that not only does it create the whole world at the moment of of your birth, but that you um, sort of carve up the world and come to understand it through analysis and and you uh, create things. And then the mystical principle uh, that culminates in the self-destruction of certain aspects of the magician's consciousness is the is the resolving of those two opposite principles in the single moment of a of annihilation mm -hmm. now there's also uh the point to be made that uh that being said and that being absolutely correct 
the uh, one of the things that will come out in this paper is uh, once again the idea that Thelema, in in searching to understand the nature of reality, recognizes that this is a going. It's not like you know. There's a na uh, the normal natural habit for us to think in terms of what is the meaning of life, what is the purpose, what is the goal, and these things, and the goal is actually kind of arbitrary. It's just there for the going to create the impetus for the going. So in this case, that's actually where we have on the one side la, which is um, not, and then on the other side l which is God. And then right in the middle, we're going to be formulating something here that is going to be not a noun or not nouns as a two-letter uh, word, or if we want to take it as a one-letter word. It's not a noun, but it's a verb. Uh, yeah. So um, there's, a, there's a couple of things unique in this presentation of the zero equals two formula. And the first thing is what I've already said, that the idea of macrocosm and microcosm is equivocated in really explicit terms by other cosms. <laughs> uh, um, and so things like the destruction of the world by fire in 1904 or the, um, the destruction of the universe when the... Adeptus Exemptus crosses the abyss and becomes the master of the temple. Uh, it, it becomes clear how these things are personalized because even though they're they're profound, there's a there's a, a universe that exists beyond this personal universe. So um, as we're doing our apocalyptic work with the Enochian entities or thinking back on the on the um, the the end of the of the last aeon, watching the death throes of the aeon of Osiris, which are material all around us, um, there's a sense of that uh, that's sort of limited to a sphere, and that there's a um, a big open space around it where that that is beyond reach of these things, or or that where these things are happening in their own way. Uh, irrespective of how they're happening to us, and then the other other thing that's that's put in this picture to complicate it is the um, shinteth, uh, which, as you're saying, there's this verb now. Crowley says obviously there needs to be an equivocating factor, uh, a mediating factor. Let's say a um, what do you call it when you you need a chemical to inspire a reaction. Oh, okay. I was going to say a bond, but because uh, he does refer to it as a bond as well, it divides and bonds them together. But uh, that's not what you're looking for. But uh, there's um, but but to to go from zero to two or from two back to zero, there needs to be an inspiring force, and so this uh, um, this uh, shinta the the. Shinteth, sorry, is uh, is the inspiring inspiring force. I mean, we were we were wondering about this relationship between uh, Tao and Te, right? How the Day is the going, and then the uh, sorry, the Tao is the going, and the Day is sort of like through which all is birthed. And here, the Shin Tao is the er, sorry, the Shinteth is the. I Tao. called it Shintao. I think I called it Shintav earlier, and that <laughs> probably poisoned your mind. <laughs> is the well? The thing is, I'm going to say that it's the Tao. Yeah. So the fact that it's true. the Shintav is Shinteth is the Tao. <laughs> 
um, um, and then the 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 low is going to be sort of the the te, I think. Anyway, it's it's kind of neat how this begins to get elaborated, and it's elaborated on, on all points because even just the the two L's in this word, the two lamids, is uh, um, the card, the tarot card in the Toth deck is adjustment, uh, but here it says justice is the kitas. Um, vagina fulfilled by the phallus not and two because the plus and minus have united in love under will and there's more of these uh, um, each of these words has its own way of being uh, dual principles that crash into each other and and uh, um, unite in an oblivionizing and it's interesting when we get to that shinteth uh, that will end up, um, I mean, he's referring to the Aleph as the fool and not in thought, i.e. Parsifal, mm -hmm. referring back to that. In not in word, Harpocrates, it's the god of silence, and not in action, Bacchus, which I don't know as much about, shamefully. <laughs> but um, he is the boundless air and the wandering ghost, but with possibilities. So the wandering ghost... Um, nevertheless, uh, the shin ends up being spirit in this estimation, and teth is matter. Even though, again, these aren't nouns in this central position of shin and teth. They're uh, verbs, but we have spirit bonded to matter. And this is like an important idea that pertains to all of this mystery of evil that we're talking about as well. Delving into evil helps us to recognize the beast as divine the reason shin gets to be spirit is because christian kabbalists in the 17th century dropped it in the middle of the tetragrammaton to create a version of the name of christ mm -hmm. so instead of jehovah you put that sh in there and it's yeshua um yeah which is probably a better pronunciation of christ than the uh <laughs> than the, the english word christ uh, and so, um, if the tetra, if the the yod -Heh vav -Heh are uh, fire, water, air, earth, then the the sheen in the middle is is uh, not fire is, again. Is, is spirit. spirit. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Bacchus. Yeah, I wonder if he's getting uh, like. Bacchus is the god of standing outside of the self, ah. uh, ecstasy. I know that Bacchus was Selenus and uh, Pan was ever Pan. <laughs> that much I know. Uh, so that's why he gets to be both wine and theater, because both of those things remove the self from the self. Mm. And so uh, if you um, if you get up to, you know, experiencing the night of Pan, like, you know, crossing the abyss and becoming non-existent the 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 verb for that the the kind of ecstasy that is like the provisional form of that where you still exist but you're removed from yourself mm. uh so is, dissociation uh, yeah yeah <laughs> it's uh, like an ecstatic dissociation someday we might have uh, the chance to speak to someone who's uh, an expert in psychological disorders mm. and, uh, <laughs> and and we can talk about how yoga is a tool for giving yourself psychological <laughs> disorders because yeah it's a disassociative state and uh, Bacchus is the god of ecstasy which is which is ecstasy is the dissociative state to stand outside of 
of mm. the self. So I, that probably what he means um, here. And further on Shin, uh, we have this idea of the angel. And this is because people are going to be familiar with the tarot card probably being the Aeon. Uh, but in, in the Wait Smith deck, it's going to be the it's going to be called the angel. Is it uh, the judgment or the angel? Uh, oh, is it the last judgment? Yeah, I can't remember which deck is, you know, what the, all the variants of <laughs> <laughs> the title are, but uh, they could very well just be d- different variants from different decks, but the point being... Well, because yeah. judgment is um, Lamed, uh, justice, sorry, rather. Yeah. And so... Judgment, it would be the last judgment, so it'd be like the... Uh, it's supposed to be like the uh, the angel with the horn calling up the dead to rise and all that sort of thing, and that becomes the Aeon card. Uh but in in the Toth deck, it represents the uh, Stele 666, the Stele of Revealing, quote, showing the gods of the Aeon while strength, and I've written in brackets lust, is a picture of Babylon and the Beast, the earthly emissaries of those gods. So Babylon and the Beast are the earthly emissaries of the gods that represent you know, the final judgment. And again, it's Nuit Hadit Rahor Kuit because we're living after the apocalypse so the, <laughs> there's a uh, the final judgment has a new shape in the birth of the new aeon and uh, and so this relationship of of shin and teth are like the spiritual and the the spiritual version and the the incarnate the version on the layer of incarnation uh of of those forces of, uh, as you say the forces of the new aeon coming into being mhm and uh, traditionally in the old Aeon, there was a lot of uh, this sort of making matter seem to be evil and trying to negate matter and to escape from matter into uh, spiritual sublimation. Uh, whereas in this Aeon, we are doing just the opposite. We're embracing matter, though I do feel like there's a danger in saying it just as simply as that because there's a natural tendency for people to think that it's just pure hedonism. There's hedonism there, but it's not like in uh, it's not like a mindless hedonism. There's he actually has like specific points that we'll get into as far as uh, delving into the mysteries of so-called evil and learning to understand them by exposure therapy. The um the, the the traditional formula for crossing the abyss, Crowley says there was no traditional formula for crossing the abyss, um, uh, and that the the new aeon is the the first time when those those grades of of adeptus minor, adeptus major, and adeptus exemptus leading up to the babe of the abyss and the master of the temple, the first time that work has been codified. Um, and he's sort of right about that, but that there is a traditional formula and it is uh, martyrdom. If you can be, if you can be tortured to death and then you get to be a, you get to be a saint and the exemplar mm. of this is Jesus, but there's all sorts of different ones, uh, people who are tortured to death and uh, and because they're being tortured, they have this sort of uh, they they experience this ego death. You know, they they transcend uh, the everything they understand about themselves gets uh, sw- wiped away by 
pain and suffering, very, very acute pain and suffering, like worse, like not being waterboarded, but like having their fingernails pulled out, hung drawn and quartered, this sort of thing, burned alive. So there's this, there's this formula of, uh, of martyrdom. And, uh, and, and like you're saying that because the world is evil, like the, the traditional formula for crossing the abyss uh, destroys the world, right? Mm-hmm. It, it it destroys both the the operator and the operated upon because you're dead, and so that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now uh, the results are sort of the same. You get your you get to attain sainthood. You become the master of the temple, and you are the you know uh, the controlling. Uh, the, the ruler of the earth for the present period or, or, or whatever. You have your role in tending the garden and in promoting uh, the energies of the current or something. Uh, but you get to be alive and have personal goals re- related to those. And you're not just... The formula of martyrdom is no longer uh, the, uh, the formula par excellence for, like, uh, for, for attainment. Now we want to do it by practicing yoga which is nice for us. <laughs> it's a little more gentle. <laughs> yeah, there's a fetishization of the uh, martyrdom uh, very quickly in the in the uh, Jesus movement, I think. Um, people started to very quickly latch onto that, and it was actually even a problem within the Christian communities, so it wasn't like everybody was on board for that. But, uh, um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone got martyred on purpose necessarily. <laughs> I mean, although we That's do not, hear stories would, about that from time to time. I would contend time. that. I would contend that because uh, uh, I think um, you know, actually, Crowley references uh, coming up. He'll reference somebody named John Huss, uh, Johannes Huss, or you know, he's a basically mm-hmm. a Dutchman who apparently uh, was um, burned at the stake. And uh, Crowley basically says if he was a little bit more chicken about it, then he would have been, you know, he could have kept alive and and been esteemed for his eggs. <laughs> so um, I, I think he's making the point here that the, there is a certain level of like, uh, you know, the um, willing to be, go, be able to go to the point of martyrdom um, to, you know, apparently for your beliefs and everything like that, there is a certain amount of people doing that with full knowledge of exactly what's going to happen to them. I mean, a very early church um, story of uh, martyrdom was a Roman, or I think it was North Africa. There was a, a girl who was, um, uh, she would she refused to pay homage to the the Roman statues, the Roman gods and the 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 emperor and whatnot. And so they were, they put her in jail and they kept, you know, coaxing her to do so and and eventually like she kept holding out her parents and her family came in and begged her to uh to uh reconsider and and uh to let up for the sake of her baby if not for herself and she just kept to her guns knowing that she was going to be thrown into the arena um with the wild animals and whatnot so um there's definitely that was like that period when i think that story uh, helped to fetishize the idea of martyrdom. So there's certainly periods in history where there was a fetishization of the idea. He'll go into this here a little bit uh, when he when we start um, talking about the the moral aspect of this, um, and he talks about you know it's my will to get to the foot of a mountain 
And the mm-hmm. easiest and fastest method would be to just throw myself off the mountain. Mm-hmm. This is the difference between the master's perspective and my own. Because when he said, it's my will to get to the foot of the mountain, I thought he meant walk there across the ground. <laughs> 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 but no, Crowley, of course, is already up the mountain and he yeah. wants to throw himself <laughs> off to get to the bottom. And he says, don't do it. Don't do that. Find another, uh, you know, a more strategic method. Because even though this will accomplish the provisional will you know, lickety split, um, you have more work to do mm-hmm. than that. And, uh, and that's it, actually it where he makes to a, be careful. He makes a very, that's a very uh, insightful point that he makes there as well, because he says, not only would you have your destroyed your apparent will, and then he makes the point of uh, apparent because of the fact that your real will, your real true will is not to reach the foot of the mountain, but just to have that as an excuse for the going, essentially. Um I, uh, I'm, I'm working on my true will formula now and, uh, and this is kind of screwing me up because he says in here that the true will, the formula can't be an errand, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't, can't remember how he phrases it, but when you take acting classes, there are rules for what an action in acting could be. And one of them is it can't be an errand. Mm-hmm. That you can't just deliver a letter and then get off stage. You have to want something <laughs> from another person. I am here delivering a letter. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, it has to be business. Is that the difference? Well, you'd have to, <laughs> an errand or business. You have to want... Some, the test has to be in the other person. Yeah. So you have to want to get something from them. And they, yeah, there has to be an obstacle in attaining that, I suppose. And I worry if the the true will formula that keeps coming to me uh, is too errandy. It's not an errand that's easily accomplished, but it is does sort of seem too goal oriented. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this the actual wording he uses here is for the true will has no goal; its nature being to go, in capital letters, mm-hmm. to go. Yeah, and I mean that's that's uh, part of the the process, the initiatory process, is to understand your true will and to um, ideally be able to distill it into, if not a single word, uh, eventually you want to be able to get to a single word. But I think just a simple statement initially. Here you said, but the but the shin and the teth are like the formula of force. In action as opposed to entities. They are not states of existence, but modes of motion. They are verbs, not nouns. Shin is the Holy Spirit as a tongue of fire, manifest in triplicity, and is the child of Set Isis as their logos or word uttered by their angel. The card is twenty, and twenty is the value of Yod. The secret seed of all things, the virgin, the hermit, Mercury, and the angel or herald expressed as, uh, he just means spelt in full. And uh, Shin. Yudvau Daleth equates to uh, 20. That's right. And then uh, Shin is the spiritual congress of heaven and earth. Um I wonder if I need to go back there and read a little bit before that, because we're talking about the way in which uh, the Shintao, Shinteth intermediates between uh, um, Lo and L. So mm. is there something else I need to read? Here we are. Thus is motion in its double phase, an inertia composed of two opposite currents, and each current is thus polarized. Shin is heaven and earth, 
Teth, male and female, is spirit and matter. One is the word of liberty and love flashing its light to restore life to the earth. The other is the act by which life claims that love is light and liberty, and these are two in one, the divine letter of silence and speech, whose symbol is the sun and the arms of the moon. Uh, and part of the reason I wanted to read this is, is again, in reference to the Tao Te King, we had this thing where uh, unmanifested is the father mm. of heaven and earth, manifested is the mother, uh, or something like that. People can read the Crowley translation of the first two chapters of the Tao Te King. Um, but here, the Shin, the card of the, the, the Aeon tarot card is heaven and earth. And uh, Teth, the lust tarot card, is male and female. That's, I, th I hope, self-explanatory. The destruction mm -hmm. of the earth by the reign of heaven and then the, um, the, the, the lusts force, the sex force uh, between Babylon and the beast. And then um, the two letters together become both spirit and matter. And uh, the one word of liberty and love flashing light to restore. Uh, further down... Um, uh, but Teth is the Holy Spirit in action as the roaring lion or that old serpent instead of the angel of light. Uh, that old serpent, if people are, are confused, in the King James translation of the, the Bible, of the, <laughs> the King James translation of the Revelation, uh, when the dragon falls from heaven, he's called that old snake, but also who is Satan. Or, or something like that. So it's the, the revelation is the place where the, the snake in Eden is equated with the devil, and then that's also the dragon falling from heaven to kind of chase the savior and spray its poison everywhere in a very erotic fashion. And the womb of the earth opens up and uh, drinks it, which is the, you know, uh, part of the secret of sex magic. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so all of this stuff here about the you know, the incoming current of the Aeon, but also being about the destruction of the... This is why I've, I've talked before about the Lama being a post-apocalyptic mm -hmm. cult, because the, the incoming forces do something when they crash up against the outgoing forces, and uh, we have nuclear war. <laughs> At least one. Yeah. Hopefully only one. <laughs> Hopefully only one. I just mean the, the Second World War. <laughs> not, 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 <laughs> not like one. an upcoming one. No. Please. Post preppers. Post preppers. Please, don't prep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is, uh, uh, it also points to the fact that the, uh, the Shin Teth, uh, you could take as spelling the word set, mm -hmm. you know, um, relating to all the, uh, the, the related deities that Crowley uh, enumerates elsewhere. Yeah, and uh, I tried to talk about this a little bit before when we were talking about the introduction to the book of the law, was it? Or was it the stuff we did last month? But um, Yeah, the equinox of the gods. The equinox of the gods. But but yeah, these these letters, there's, there's mysteries relating to these letters in... Uh, how they equate to a number of different sort of adversarial deities. Mm -hmm. You could almost picture that uh, Shin Teth lettering standing in the midst of La and El, almost in the sign of Apophis, really, mm. as a mediator. Yeah, and uh, and this being 
the force that that mediates between again if our ontology is like um i and sof and then the whole of creation somehow coming out of of that primordial nothing um then this the the fact that this um that this verb that mediates that is 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 the verb of the adversarial deity is is interesting and unusual and important and maybe one of the um ways that Crowley justifies calling his church a gnostic church in the tradition of those who um believe the creator god was either evil or in error and that there's a higher deity beyond them that maybe wouldn't have done creation <laughs> mm-hmm. or at least not done it in the same way. Uh, here's what you keep, what you mentioned. And I just have WTF. Shintao. <laughs> uh, uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Shinteth supplies the last element, making the word of either five or six letters, according as we regard uh, Shinteth as one letter or two. Thus the word affirms the great work and accomplishes five equals six. And here I wonder if this is my mistake or his, because if you spell uh there, the the letter shin in Hebrew has dots over it, and whether the dot is in the first position or the second position t- tells you whether that's the letter sin or the letter shin. Mm-hmm. And when you translate transliterate that into English, the letter sin is just an s, while the letter shin is the sh. And but the the t has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if he's just misremembering something here or or getting you know writing really fast like you're saying on a coke binge and going this <laughs> oh there's something here with this where it could be just one letter but it's not that it could be one letter it could be three or two maybe well actually as a matter of fact you may be forgetting um the uh or maybe this is, i can't remember how well this came up in the equinox of the gods because uh, this whole idea of the discovery of the instead of thinking of it as sheen teth, let's think of it as sigma theta. Right. Because uh, Crowley in the Book of the Law, uh, with the the steli of revealing, will be unto you as seven eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was when he's in his commentary talking about how he was mulling over that for however long, how many years he was wrestling with that nut, trying to figure out how the stele was 718, he eventually ended up spelling stele in Greek, but using a little-known device in ancient Greek where whereby the sigma and theta would be combined into one letter. Oh. So it'd be... And he used... Uh, in, additionally, in some places, he would use a Coptic letter that would equate to both simultaneously. Uh, interesting. Okay. Um, and then it's Stele 666, so 666 plus whatever the sum of that word yeah, is. Yeah, so the word Stele ends up being 718. Yeah, 718, that's correct. So And so he found that to be, I guess that's how he discovered that to be the other sort of secret uh, word of the Book of the Law that was another key, and particularly in, this, in relation to this particular word. You know, one can assume, I don't think I know this for sure, but one can assume that Crowley has a fairly nice library at Bolskine, <laughs> but he doesn't leave, he doesn't live at Bolskine, 
forever, you know, he has to sell it at some point. Mm -hmm. And also he spends a lot of time traveling without mm -hmm. his library. And uh, he has a, spends a lot of time like super coked up at least during this period <laughs> um and uh and uh you know he doesn't have the internet he's trying to remember things he learned at cambridge uh trinity college trinity college uh yeah, sometimes that's cambridge though so <laughs> so uh um you know when he starts talking about set theory and stuff it's often wrong <laughs> uh so like i said it's hard to tell whether whether he's wrong or you are but i appreciate you <laughs> filling me in on these on these uh, yeah i mean it doesn't help when gap. he when he has uh Frater Ahad put a, lot, a bunch of his books into storage and then uh they get lost and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all that good stuff <laughs> uh, mike's making air quotes <laughs> apparently forgotten it's an audio podcast <laughs> <laughs> nobody needs to see my editorial life <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about the word what other things do you want to say about the uh Lashtel before we move on to uh the mystery of evil um, I think we're probably safe. I mean, we didn't really touch... It's probably worth just uh, addressing what's obvious to us, especially having talked about it in the Equinox of the Gods, but the uh, Shinteth, uh, the way in which... Um, so the, the we mentioned the uh, La and Al, those being, you know, the same two letters, and mm -hmm. so they equate to 31 using Gematria. Uh, the L would be 30, the, the Lamed... And the left would be one. And then so that gives us 62 if you combine those two. The shin and teth would be 309. So that's not really necessarily helpful in getting us to 93 like all those other words within the ritual. But Crowley uses the Roman numerals from the tarot uh, trumps, which these letters are associated with. So shin being the 20th and then the 20th card of the tarot and then uh, the teth being the 11th card of the tarot. Hence, you get 31 there as well. Uh, that's right. And sort of toward the end of this section here, as we are gradually transitioning from talking about the the key word to talking about um, this in, in more moralistic terms, he says of, of Shin Teth, this is, in fact, the formula of our magic. We insist that all acts must be equal, that existence asserts its right to exist, that unless evil is a mere term expressing some relation of haphazard hostility between forces equally self-justified, the universe is as inexplicable and impossible as, un as uncompensated action, that the orgies of Bacchus and Pan are no less sacramental than the masses of Jesus and that the scars of syphilis are sacred and worthy of honor as much as the wounds of the martyrs of Mary. Uh, so here we have the, the first uh, sort of little bit of doffing the hat to martyrdom a little bit here. Um, but so the idea here is that evil has to be relativistic, that we're, when we talk about evil, we're talking about hostility between forces which are equally self-justified mm -hmm. uh you and i each have our own uh our own sort of righteousness and uh the evil uh, of that we may see in each other's positions is just a, is a matter of of disagreement and if that's not correct uh then the universe is inexplicable and impossible 
at least as inexplicable and impossible as uncompensated action. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and then these other things, uh, the the orgies of Bacchus and the masses of Jesus or the scars of syphilis and the wounds of Mary, that if we, if we believe in an absolute moral code, somehow, um, somehow these, these injuries become morally equal somehow, I'm, which I'm not clear on exactly how mm-hmm. that works uh, off the top of my head. But, uh, but we're, we're having an argument for moral relativism. <laughs> I mean, the, the, big, the big thing that's going to come into play here is that uh, um, he's arguing for understanding context. And uh, I think this is uh, the difficulty that people have engaging with Crowley a lot of the time when we're talking about this kind of subject matter is that they get distracted because the words are so inflammatory to so many people and that sort of thing. But he's talking about understanding context. If, uh, if we learn to see evil as being a conditional thing that's based on context, then we can understand it more truly. And we can understand, we can get to know what is actually damaging and what is not damaging or where the problems are, where the conflict really is, rather than being distracted by this moralistic idea of um, this side is good and that side is evil. There's a, a truth being expressed here that is is very, very difficult. Um, there's a Crowley is a, a relic of this wonderful period sort of that exists isolated in its anterior by sort of Friedrich Nietzsche and in its posterior by the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and between Nietzsche and the Second World War, we get a lot of philosophers talking about uh, moral relativism and uh, really getting close to something true. Um, uh, before Nietzsche, this is too hard. And then after the Second World War, uh, we want to find a way to get evil back to say that, you know, the Holocaust wasn't just, you know, relatively <laughs> evil, but that there's something there. It, we were looking for a way to say um, that there is an absolute meaningful definition of evil uh, that that transcends human position. And so we go a little bit wrong philosophically by... Uh, by reference to, you know, some some truly devastating realities that that we come up against, um, but uh, but in this period, people are more are much much more comfortable discussing this, uh, um, dis- discussing the the moral relativism. And uh, well, it's interesting to think of uh, something that's come up for us before, which is the idea of um, I think we we're talking about the Jack Parsons paper, and uh, he's talking about the fact that uh, somebody can equate their ego with all of mankind. They can actually expand their ego to include all of mankind. Uh, And using that in a practical light, I think he was talking about it in a slightly um, cynical light, if I remember correctly, but uh, thinking of it in a practical light, your ego does fluctuate in that sense. You know, you, you have your own ego separate from everyone else, and then you have your ego including your immediate family, whom you would protect. And then you have your ego expanding to include your tribe and so on and so forth. And so uh, what's relatively evil to that? Um, If it's evil to humanity, 
then that's a problem for humanity, you know? <laughs> uh, I'll take that. I'll take that provisionally. <laughs> I'll have to listen back on this, back to this and work on it. Incidentally, I am completely uh, divorced from any uh, objectivity uh, about what's going on right now. I have no idea where whether anyone's going to be able to understand anything we've been talking about. <laughs> uh, it's a bit weird because um, uh, this book is so... Like, Crowley gets a lot of shit for being verbose, and uh, and sometimes he is. But when he writes these short pieces of philosophy like this, um, once again, I've marked virtually everything out as a quotation <laughs> to read because it goes step by step by step in such a concise way that to omit anything is like a thread of the argument gets mm. unwoven. And uh, obviously we can't just read the whole thing and we've been skipping through it in a way that to us feels nice and mm -hmm. conversational, but I have no idea whether anyone's going to get anything out of this <laughs> at all. I mean, it's short. You can read it. If you're if you're confused now, turn it off, read it, and come back. Well, you know what? It might actually be nice to, because I, I feel like this is the kind of piece where uh, you can read through it, and if you're not trying to analyze it the way that we're attempting to, uh, you could very easily get a little bit lost in the weeds. Mm -hmm. uh, you start sort of zone out at some point, and you lose a, like a paragraph, and then you're out of it. You know, or at least you've lost the thread of the argument, and you feel like you're in a different place. I've read this literally frontwards and backwards, which is a trick. <laughs> you did it's, this too. <laughs> it's a trick I play sometimes on 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 Crowley is see where he's going to end up. Yeah, and then uh, and then uh, you know I read I read the paragraphs in reverse order, <laughs> then I go back and read it again in forward order, and then I read it and do a, try to do a one sentence su summary of every paragraph so that I can follow the thread. And then once you do that, it becomes clear how none of it is omissible. <laughs> it's just, it really yeah. is. It, the outline is so great, which is fascinating because I'm sure he didn't do an outline. I'm sure mm -hmm. he just fucking threw it on the <laughs> page. I love that you've uh, you've explained this because I literally did this in my notes, so it's, I could show you right now. This is exactly the same approach that I took, so it's uh, hilarious. But you're absolutely right. It's you you go through it backwards. Maybe that's a good suggestion for people if you want to read it through front to back first, and then just take it paragraph by paragraph, working your way backwards, and try to distill it into just a very concise sentence. And that's a great way to uh, really just get to the meat of what he's talking about. I mean, it's important to understand where we're... Like, you can't just pass your eyes over it once and say that you've read it, right? Because those first six paragraphs that are about zero equals two... Um, I mean, even just from listening to us, you have some idea, okay, microcosm, macrocosm, uh, whatever. Uh, and then realizing that it's going to have something to do with the problem of evil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, that's a more detailed and elaborate reading than I think is given in other places. I mean, he talked, we've talked about this way of, of analyzing evil through meditation mm -hmm. um, before, uh, and we've talked about the zero equals two ontology a little bit before. Um, but this is the first time we're going to talk about how this thing about evil is part of maybe what creates the self, not self dualism, you know, because there are some things you want to reject. Um, and then also uh, this is the first time we're going to see like, is this a ritual? Is this a magic ritual for actually, uh, 
in invoking real evil <laughs> rather than just a meditative exercise where you imagine, what if I were dead? You know? <laughs> so this is, uh, there's, there's things that are going to be fun about this. Hopefully it's already been fun. <laughs> if it hasn't already been fun, I don't know why you're still here. <laughs> yeah, it's an hour and a half in. What do you... <laughs> uh, here's what I've been talking about. The magician should devise for himself a definite technique of destroying evil. The essence of such a practice will consist in training the mind and the body to confront things which cause fear, pain, disgust, shame, and the like. He must learn to endure them, then to become indifferent to them, then to analyze them until they give pleasure and instruction and finally to, the, to appreciate them for their own sake as an aspect of truth. When this is done, he should abandon them if they are really harmful in relation to health and comfort. Also, our selection of evils is limited to those that cannot damage us irreparably. For example, one ought to practice smelling asafoetida, forgive me to Mr. Asafoetida for mispronouncing his name, <laughs> until one likes it, but not arsine or hydrocyanic acid. Uh, because, you know, they're bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're poisoning. Um, and so, yeah, this is nice, or, or interesting anyway, because um, it equivocates on something we've talked about at least twice before, where, um, you know, the last the last time I was saying how this was kind of Crowley's tantric period, perhaps, and how the tantrics, you know, would, uh, even though uh, there's the f four S's, I think, and I can't remember what they are, um, that even, that might even be wrong. Five S's. But it means to, like, drink alcohol, which is forbidden by the religion. It means to fornicate, which is forbidden by the religion. And then, like, they come up in contact with death, you know. Mm. Uh, um, the I wasn't just being gross. The example I used last time of, like, making love with a menstruating prostitute on the back of a corpse. Like, that's mm -hmm. not... That's a... Um, those are those are encapsulating real ideas that these people would actually be be trying to come up against to overcome, and so here uh, Crowley, in possibly one of his most debased periods at at Kefalu, is saying like, "Don't do anything that's really bad for you. <laughs> like work on things that are not preferred, not things like don't mutilate yourself." Yeah, you know? it seems like uh, the the uh, the. The dangerous ones are things that are going to be seriously harmful for you, and then things that are dishonorable. Right. So he's yeah. going to talk about thieveries. Uh, you can you can deal with that in the abstract. You don't actually have to become a thief in order to confront it. And the way he gets to dishonorable is interesting too, because it's not that you're really trespassing against another person; it's that you're placing yourself in an inferior position mm -hmm. by stealing from someone it's like it, it's a uh, it's covetousness you know there's like uh, you, you're you're and you have to be envious of someone believe that they have something worth stealing before you go and and so uh, even if you're just going through the exercise of stealing as an exercise just to prove that you can or to overcome the morality of it there's a way in which you're acting out um uh the the like you're you're playing the part in that pageant of a of an inferior person who is is punching up at a superior and you don't want to like humiliate yourself like that by stealing hmm. love is a virtue it grows stronger and purer and less selfish by applying it to what it loathes 
but theft is a vice involving the slave idea that one's neighbor is superior to oneself. It is admirable only for its power to develop certain moral and mental qualities in primitive types, to prevent the atrophy of such faculties as our own vigilance, and for the interest which it adds to the tragedy. Man. Um, but here, you know, this this is something nice in the, the sea of all the uh, thalemic horrors that you might, you know, <laughs> things that might freak people out about Thelema here. Love is a virtue, you know, it's basic. It doesn't need to be justified. We don't need to make excuses for love. We can explain will and love in relation to each other, but but we just say, we can just say that, you know, love is a virtue, basic principle, you know, like this is at bottom. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the fact that you cultivate love by trying to apply it to things that are other that are instinctively distasteful um, uh, to what it loathes, this is a a valuable way to pass your time by by engaging in a sort of uh, resistance exercise to strengthen your power to love uh, against offensive things. This is the uh, the point of this. Like it's it's so easy to miss the point, I'm sure, but it's like the point of this is love. The idea of unification with every element of the universe, and this goes back to Lieber Labellum and a lot of the things we talked about there. I mean, he's talking about like, again, one might have a liaison with an ugly woman, an ugly old woman, until one beheld and loved the star that she is. You know, just as an example of that, and it's, uh, it's. And what's the counterexample? What things should you not do? Oh, it would be too dangerous to overcome the distaste for dishonesty by forcing oneself to pick pockets. Oh, okay. So that's just the example we've been. Yeah. We've been hitting. Yeah. So you know, uh, there's uh, people want to equivocate on on this stuff all the time, you know, uh, and so here's here's some. Uh, permission to, permission to do that <laughs> the rare place in which Crowley equivocates uh, and, and then some some helpful things some some sort of saccharine things about uh, love being virtuous for its own sake and, and cultivating it now how do we take this back um, to our sort of thesis statement about you know God creating the universe for his own uh, for his own pleasure you know you're God Darren let's say. Well, thank you. And you've created the universe for your pleasure. And so uh, you're, uh, you know, wandering around doing uh, uh, pleasing things. And, and uh, how does this, uh, how does this thing about the, the mystery of evil look back at the idea of a, of a God creating incarnation to satisfy his own, uh, his own need for existence, right? Like we have this thing about the, the self in uh, microcosm and, being a reflection of of the macrocosm, um, and and somehow it, it it has to be to do with this principle of evil. Uh, let's look here. Um, I am omniscient for not exists for me unless I know it. I am om- I am omnipotent for not occurs for me save by necessity. My soul's expression through my will to be to do to suffer the symbols of itself. I am omnipresent for not exists where I am not who fashioned space as a condition of my consciousness of myself, who am the center of all, and my circumference the frame of my own fancy. Uh, uh, this is, here is specifically this section here. 
omnipotent for naught occurs save by necessity, my soul's expression through will to be, to do, to suffer the symbols of itself. Mm -hmm. And the symbols of itself, uh, uh, the thoughts are the letters of my name and that sort of thing. So um, one way to think of this is potentially like in relation to the Buddhist idea of uh, the the vision of sorrow and the idea that the universe is illusion and uh, a source of sorrow. And this is a bit of a, an answer to that in a sense. So um, if we understand the formulation of our own being by understanding ourselves as conditioned um, and, and recognizing the truth of things and thereby breaking through the illusion then uh, we can put ourselves in right relation to ourselves and recognize that even if sorrow is included in the universe, so what? The universe is still joy, even if we partake of sorrow as well. So here we're getting into the portion where he's going to address morality specifically. And this whole idea of exposure therapy seems to be to help us to overcome the idea of morality. Uh, and not in the sense that is most superficial and obvious where we think of morality as being uh, what's right and what's wrong and overcoming morality to be to say no to what's right or to accept what's wrong. That's not what we're talking about here. Morality is something that's been blocking us and causing us suffering. It's been enslaving us. And he's going to describe it as Moloch, which is sort of like this tyrant that's been ruling over us. And throughout the next several paragraphs, we're going to have uh, the destroyers of Moloch who have freed us therefrom. And yet, as time goes on, they yearn for the good old days when Moloch ruled, and at least we had some kind of stability and that sort of thing. That's very good. Um, I'm also starting to think about um, a paper which I don't even know if I've read. It might be something I heard about on a podcast or something. So forgive me for the uh, for for being a tertiary source on this. But uh, the um, someone like Julia Kristeva, maybe a Freudian and a feminist who writes a paper on abjection, uh, which is sort of like the idea that when you're born, you're so used to being an organ of your mother that you you continue to conceive of yourself as an organ of your mother for a certain period mm -hmm. and um and and think of yourself as being you know almost a satellite being and as you begin to mature and realize that your mother can't satisfy all of your material needs and that you certainly can't satisfy all of your mother's material emotional societal needs um you react to that by becoming disgusted and so this visceral kind of abjection, the sense of like needing to vomit, mm. is part of how we first subjectify ourselves. And then this is the kind of uh, seed principle for Kristeva in terms of like her feminist interpretation, because she then thinks that this disgust that we have about uh this d disappointment that becomes disgust in our relationship with our mother becomes uh, a generalizable sort of misogyny that we need to get over to become adults, th mm -hmm. that we 
um, that we subjectify ourselves by going through this experience of misogyny and uh, and coming out the other side. But yeah, there's there's a way in which um, in in which this thing this thing about creating the universe has to do with being revolted. Like the first things you put outside yourself are the things which are either necessarily outside of yourself and then which disgust you because they are necessarily outside of yourself. You're expelling them. Um, uh, and then, yeah, the Moloch stuff is cool. <laughs> uh, so Moloch is a bull or maybe an owl, uh, depending on where you look and who you're talking to. He's a, um, a Syrian deity. And I don't know if we know much about Moloch as a as a proto Syrian god, um, but the way he's spoken of in the Tanakh is that uh, he's a god to whom you sacrifice children, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the children in this paper are the children of morality, uh, and so when you have this uh, sort of objective morality that's seen as like as like an ontological principle. Some things just are good and some things just are evil, um, that that creates a, a sort of general spirit. And that spirit is the, the sacrifice to the, to the god Moloch. It, he eats his own mm-hmm. children. And then the, when, you, when people like Nietzsche uh, come along to, uh, to, to unseat Mol- Moloch and show us that there is no objective uh, morality, um, the reaction to that is sort of horror because when people are free, everyone gets scared mm-hmm. and, uh, they, um, they, they wish they could sacrifice these new children, the, the fruits of their science. Uh, they wish they could sacrifice those back to Moloch too. Um, and maybe we should do some quotes cause I'm getting lost in the sea of, of this, uh, <laughs> Uh, I was looking digression. for a particular paragraph, actually, because I had it listed on my notes as uh, specifically Nietzschean, very much recalling the idea of Nietzsche's uh, um, declaring, uh, "We have God is dead and we have killed him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's that, that remorse and that, that basically the children who, you know, the child in us comes back fearful of suddenly having to be uh, self-reliant and no longer dependent on something else. So you you gain freedom, and freedom is a scary thing. There is no principle, even a false one, to give coherence to the clamor of ethical propositions. Yet the very men that have smashed Moloch had strewn the earth with shapeless rubble grow pale when they so much as whisper among themselves. While Moloch ruled, all men were bound by the one law, and by the oracles of them that, knowing the fraud, feared not, but were his priests and his wardens of his mystery. What now? What can any of us, though wise and strong as never was known, prevail on men to act in concert, now that each prays to his own chip of God, and yet knows every other chip to be a worthless ort, dream dust, ape dung, tradition bone, or what not else? Yeah, that's really good. So it's about this uh, abjection of sort of science, scientific 
detachment, scientific objectivism from the uh, from the culture which it it creates. Right. Mm. I mean, if everyone's so skeptical, um, uh, then they start asking questions, and it it uh, an educated populace creates a creates a sort of um, uh, people less likely to want to be led perhaps is mm-hmm. is and that's part of the hope right is we want people to be um self-directed and self-confident and mature but to the end that they participate in the project mm-hmm. and so if people become too critical uh where they're able to evaluate for themselves the well, they're able to do an evaluation of the project itself, the value of the project itself, itself, and find that that lacking. And by the project, I mean like civilization. <laughs> um, then that then that creates a, a like we can't all have a say in everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like either the 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 civilization is a project, and even if people disagree with the aims of the project, we still need them to participate uh, because otherwise the, the cracks start to show through so this idea of having a uh, the way Parsons talked about having a, a, a moral shame that everyone was stuck with um, as a as a vehicle for guiding them was was really quite helpful and mm-hmm. uh, he, Crowley says science begins to see that the initiates were maybe not merely silly and selfish in making their rule of silence uh, um, uh, but, and in protecting philosophy from the profane because uh, um, it, by creating this dual class, you know, the, the people that actually have a say in the project are the ones who evaluate the project. And the people, you know, like you and me, who really have no power to, to <laughs> decide what, you know, Canada is going to do as a nation, um, uh, we we really shouldn't be worrying ourselves about it you know <laughs> we need to uh we need to worry what the next subject is for our podcast and whether we <laughs> meditated today and you know how we're dealing with our own material circumstances and not uh these larger political issues uh, um but but all people want to do now is watch the news right <laughs> Maybe one of the reasons Crowley says I never in my life disgraced myself by voting (laughs) or, you know, why uh, his jolly detective checks, consults the I Ching every morning and calls that the newspaper. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we can see in the world that uh, there's this tendency towards things breaking down more and more, not breaking down, you know, in the in the way it may seem. I mean, that uh, rather than, for instance, in the Thelemic community. Uh, rather than having um, everybody who's in the Thelema community all working together towards the same goal, we have a lot of breaking off into different groups and breaking off into you know their own style, self-styled Thelema and their own self-styled approaches and that sort of thing. And um, so that can very easily undermine a lot of the potential goals that we share. But then again... This is something that comes part and parcel when you have uh, this individuation project. So I can't say that it's, you know, that there's anything wrong with it because we don't want a collectivism. We don't want a, a communism for Thelema, you know. Um, if we go up a little bit more, uh, crime, folly, sickness, and all such phenomenon must be contemplated with complete fear 
<laughs> That's a weird Freudian slip. Let me begin again. <laughs> Crime, folly, sickness, and all such phenomenon must be contemplated with complete freedom from fear, aversion, or shame. Otherwise, we shall fail to see accurately and interpret intelligently, in which case we shall be unable to outwit and outfight them. Atomists and physiologists grappling in the dark with death have won hygiene, surgery, prophylaxis, and the rest for mankind. Anthropologists, archaeologists, physicists, and other men of science, risking thumbscrews, stake, infamy, and ostracism, have torn the spider snare of superstition to shreds and broken in pieces the monstrous idol of morality, the murderous Moloch which has made mankind its meat throughout history. Each fragment of the corpolite it manifests as an image of some brute lust, some torpid dullness, some ignorant instinct, or some furative fear shapen by its own savage mind. So uh, here um, we have the introduction of Moloch as sort of the, the idea of morality, and then uh, Moloch's children. So when the scientists are bravely working in the dark uh, and uh, against uh, culture, um, each fragment of corpolite, corpolite I looked up, it's a fossilized uh, poop. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and which is very, very helpful. You can, if you're a person who does uh, work on extinct animals, you can learn a lot uh, by, uh, if you find corpolite, it's very, very helpful in, in learning many things like, you know, not just diet, but, uh, you know, general health and that kind of, like the ways in which the population behaves. What ancient memes look like. Yeah, right. Um, uh, and so here, when we're able to confront that which is not preferred directly, not just shit, but fossilized shit, like <laughs> these things that are not preferred being the things that were, that were not preferred by the ancestors of our ancestors <laughs> and were left like with, the, uh, the foth of humanity. Yeah. Ooh, very good. <laughs> we're left with just the shells mm -hmm. of, of those haunted fears. Um, and as we as we dig through them, we find these the children of Moloch, these uh, um, these these little nuggets of information, brute lust, uh, torpid dullness, ignorant instinct, furtive fear, shapen of its own savage mind, and the results of those things when we look at them closely are such things as uh, as medicines and prophylactics and uh, and you know uh, anthropological and archaeological. Uh, in information so we so morality sets up these um structures that we all consent to theoretically so if we get together as a society we consent to this idea of this morality structure um which ends up being uh essentially self-interested in the sense that it wants to survive and it will be very um defensive against anything that's a threat to it uh, almost in the sense like an egregore or something like that. So that's this is where you get the thumb screws and what have you that come into play. Where um, I mean, I like to uh, say that uh, like people like to think of burning at the stake and thumb screws and torture and all that sort of thing. We like to associate that with uh, the Inquisition, and uh, of course that leads us to associate it with Christianity. Um, religions don't torture people. People torture people. This can happen with atheists because atheists are still people. <laughs> so no matter where you go, 
there you are. Uh, yes, and but in this paper we have atheists wishing wishing they had a religious excuse to torture mm -hmm. people because <laughs> otherwise it doesn't seem quite so savory <laughs> that's right because what fun would the universe be <laughs> without the excuse yeah. what's the, and the justification for torture what's the joy in torturing someone if god's not watching <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do this you need an audience uh, um, who doesn't love a voyeur <laughs> So we had been we, we touched on a little bit about the fact that that scientists uh, were now wishing that they had a way to silence skepticism, even though skepticism is a is a beautiful tool for science. Um, we're in this place where we can't state anything objectively. You know, every philosopher needs five hundred caveats before they assert. Mm. Um, uh, whatever they're going to assert, gone are the days when people could write aphoristically like Heraclitus or Nietzsche. Um, and now everyone has to be Immanuel Kant writing a 1,500-page mm -hmm. book to, to say a few fairly simple ideas because they need to restate every premise and deal with possible objections. Um, and, uh, and, and science wishes, wishes that they could state things objectively and that, uh, and that they had a religious... Um, way to way to control people. And here, Crowley says, this digression has outstayed its welcome. It was only invited by wisdom that it might warn rashness of dangers that encompass even sincerity, energy, and intelligence when they happen not to contribute to fitness in the environment. So this this kind of radical, rabid, uh, vital skepticism, even though Crowley will say, you know, skeptics are valuable, and um, and uh, he'll uh, he'll want you to learn uh, rules of logic and, and stuff in other places. That the that this drifting into a place where everything needs to be questioned all the time, uh, and and positive principles can't be stated positively, uh, that was just a digression. <laughs> and it has outstayed its welcome. And the only thing we needed it for was to remind ourselves that we make mistakes. You know, uh, thing, sincerity, energy, and intelligence need to contribute to f the fitness to the environment. And when they don't contribute to the fitness of the environment, we should be skeptical about them. You know, even things that seem right on paper, if, uh, if they're not actually helpful then uh then then what are they for and and skepticism was a digression was a tool invented to deal with this question and now it's just become an outrageous uh outrageous di digression yeah you know i guess uh that's a nice way to maybe think of this lashtal word as well because on the one side you could place um skepticism and mm -hmm. then on the other side you could place something along the lines of credit uh not credibility. Credulity. Uh, credulity, thank you. Um, so you could have credulity and skepticism balanced against each other with some kind of an intermediary uh, spirit melded with matter. And we could meditate on that as teaching us essentially that you have unbalance on one side or the other, and you have unbalance. So we need to balance these things. Uh I wasn't sure whether to go with you on that or not, but now I'm sort of thinking it's it's actually really it's really neat because um 
when you're coming down the tree of life into creation, uh, um, you have Babylon, uh, you know, giving birth to creation, um, and all her, all all the the you know children of the earth going forth to fornicate or whatever, you know, <laughs> uh, all these ideas and textures and concepts and the the power to do science and uh, the you know the self not self dualism, the power to analyze the world around you, and then when you're coming up on the path of return, you cross the abyss and you encounter Haranzon. Uh, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll clean that up. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, uh, and, and there, there's all these things that seem to be scientific thoughts, but they're just a dispersion of the, the seed understanding, which is kind of, which is the not existence that the mystic is searching for. So, um, uh, when you're talking about credulity versus incredulity, like, when you're going up into the Ayan Sof, the knot, the low, um, you have to be incredulous mm. and refuse all the false ideas that you're being shown. But when you're coming down into creation, there is value in doing scientific work and, and, and yeah, having I like credulity. That. It's uh, appropriate as well because we are talking about the idea of like we've created this illusion. He's he's talking about that in here. You've created this illusion for your own um, for your own enjoyment essentially. Well the reason I, I talk about it in that way is that the that that of course the SHT is the is the catalyst for the reaction between nothing mm -hmm. and something so yeah we we have any ideas we have about it we have to try to test by referring it back to this zero equals two yeah and i mean again it's a it's it's best to think of this as a continuing process of going rather than just a static uh noun or something like that so um i like the idea of oscillating between these points being able to use credulity and use skepticism as tools and then beliefs are no longer something that you are stuck with but something you can pick up and put down as needed or useful there's another thing which complicates the picture here coming up and it's pretty neat so i don't want to kind of leave it out but in the so in the first six um paragraphs um he'll talk about you know i am i am sort of nothing because i'm you know, I am not where love is. I am. I am not where love is not. I am not where I am not. Mm -hmm. uh, I am not not. But then I am nothing by comparison to the actual thing because infinitely small, infinitely large, or whatever. When something is infinitely large, uh, what is if whatever's is not infinitely large is seems infinitely small by comparison. It might mm -hmm. as well be nothing. Um, uh, and there's sort of. Uh, a thelemic fatalism expressed there. You know, I am omnipotent because everything that happened happened out of necessity. You know, yeah, I am where I am, and if anything had been slightly different, I wouldn't be here. So all of the circumstances of my life are necessitated by my existence, mm -hmm. and so the the thelemic fatalism uh, is uh, expressed really, really acutely in this paper. And now we have this thing about uh, the the parabola, you know, this little arc with mm -hmm. its going, bound at one point and bound at another point. 
it's it seems to be a straight line but it's never straight it sort of curves up and the curve gets sharper and sharper and sharper and then humps and then it gets more gradual and more gradual and more gradual as it comes down and there's there's even an idea that initiates can calculate where they are on their parabola mm. because this idea of destiny is so ingrained and so sophisticated um but but there's also this sort of there's sort of your parabola in reference to the parabolas of others and then eventually it becomes three-dimensional and you realize that you're actually in a cone mm -hmm. and so there seems to be an emergent idea of infinite possibility here you know infinite dimension and infinite possibility which are both things that Crowley is skeptical of not only here but in not only in other places but in this this same text um it seems like the universe is finite and uh and things are my the course of my life is radically determined but then also here we live in a in a world of infinite proportion and infinite possibilities mm. so uh um i i want to i want to try to nod to the um uh, the sort of way this picture is complicated here uh, because yeah, we talked about destiny elsewhere in this podcast and uh, and there's a there's an idea of, of there's an idea of not destiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like th here in this uh, he's using this idea of a parabola philosopher, so mm -hmm. somebody who is to exist with only the the dimensions of this line going around a cone and forming a parabola. Um, and what they'd be capable of knowing would only be coming from one end behind them or one end in front of them. And nothing outside of that they could comprehend. But maybe by intersecting with others, they could gain new information and be able to infer a little bit more about their universe. But they wouldn't be able to infer everything about the cone. And so I, I like the idea that this is uh, applied to ourselves. We could think of this as being, uh, I mean, you could just look at magic in general. This is a good argument for um, not just closing off to the idea of magic um, by saying that, well, we can't, uh, we have science that empirically studies the universe and that's it. That's all there is. Um, but even within science, we have things that come through, we have discoveries that revolutionize our conceptions of things and are earth shattering to us initially, but then we adapt and we assimilate the idea and we move on and it becomes normal. So he uses the example of, uh, radiation. The discovery of radiation, which I think was like 1896. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the uh, discovery of radiation radically undermined everything that we'd, uh, you know, conceived of before that point in time and gave it a new insight into the nature of the universe. And then we got on with business. And that, then we made a, a bombs and <laughs> all that stuff. Hooray! <laughs> I don't. I do not like the fact that the atom uh, atom bomb is becoming a running theme. <laughs> <laughs> like this is uh, this is this is our first uh, running gag. This <laughs> joke, the joke, the reference to the a bomb is our is our first catchphrase, uh, and I, it's not. I'm not happy with it. But I guess you know he's not. Arguing, he's telling you. Um, the you're right. That was an Awas bomb, by the way. A bomb of a different sort. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> Boo! We we need puns. We need <laughs> uh, the uh, 
you're right. He is condescending here to the parabola man. You know, it, he's he's it's like he's talking to someone in a sort of Sartrean bad faith. You know, like <laughs> like the idea of of um, what are some of his examples? Like the waiter who acts perfectly as a waiter and just is a waiter, uh, and uh, and you know every gesture is sculpted. And but the, he doesn't have a humanity because. Mm. He doesn't. He he doesn't realize that he could ever be anything other than a waiter. Like he's he's allowed his job to become his destiny, mm-hmm. um, and denies the possibility that he could just not go to the cafe one day. Um, Is this Sartre? You're Sartre, talking yeah, about? Okay. yeah. And uh, and so the, the, he's in bad faith because you know he doesn't uh, acknowledge the fact that he's that he's free. And I, I kind of didn't think of Thelema as an existentialist because there's so much about like your true will is the formula of your destiny. And there are things about true will is not free will. So there are things about mm. that restriction. Although he does, he does reference it. Like uh, you are, you, your, your true will is fixed mm-hmm. because it is the conditions of it are essentially its name. Um, but that being the case, that frees it. So here he's trying, I think down here, he sort of adopts even a third position, or maybe this is his basic position. But I think, I think these are, these are called libertarian arguments, um, where you try to find a way for the world to be radically determined, but still justify calling Mm. man free. Gotcha. And so he says, true will is thus both determined by its equations and free, because those equations are simply its own name spelled out fully. His sense of being under bondage comes from his inability to read it. His sense that evil exists to thwart him arises when he begins to read it, reads wrong, and is obstinate that his error is an improvement. So obstinate that his error is an improvement. So you're you're making mistakes when you're reading, mm-hmm. and that's an improvement, but you feel bad about it because you're like, oh, I'm still making mistakes. And you may not even recognize the mistakes. And so you, but no, he, so he's recognizing the mistakes and he's, he, the, the obstinance is that he doesn't want to admit that he's improved. Oh, I, thought, I took it as his sense that evil exists to thwart him being an illusion that is created um, when he reads wrong and is obstinate that his error is part of his improvement. So his reading wrong being uh, he takes as an improvement, leading him to believe in evil because that's where, yeah. Mm, maybe it's a little bit uh, academic uh, by, or semantic, you know, maybe. But, uh, but, but somehow there's, there's a denial. There's a denial that he's, a, that he's improved and he wants to blame the he he sees the errors as being evils rather than as being evidence of of progress you know yeah uh, either way it's still yeah. it's a process that's being undergone so i wanted to talk about this uh, libertarianism i th- i think libertarianism is we admit that the course of life is fixed but we want to think of ourselves as being free and so um, if our circumstances are such that we would have chosen them, you know, then uh, then we were free to choose them. I'd change it to prove, prove myself right, but I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> well, even like, uh, like you go to a restaurant, there's only one thing on the menu. That seems very limiting. 
But if all day you'd been craving bacon and eggs, and the only thing they serve is bacon and eggs, then you've expressed your freedom of will by ordering the, <laughs> by only, only, the thing only thing available. That's possible to do. So, so, uh, so man is free in a radically determined universe to the extent in which he expresses himself in the in following the determined course. So, uh, and this is almost exactly, I think, what. Crowley is mm -hmm. saying here, except he's doing it by analogy. And I wanted to talk about names. The word name is in here three times, uh, right at the very beginning. Uh, right at the very beginning, he says, I am the all for all that exists for me is a necessary expression in thought of some tendency of my nature. And all my thoughts are only the letters of my name. And here he says he's trying to read his name and making mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's in here one more time, and I thought I had underlined it, and I guess I didn't, so we'll have to deal with just these two places. So what what's a name? What's the significance of that? My, my, my uh, way of seeing it was that uh, in it's the idea that as an individual you're actually not just um, the conception of an individual that you think you are, but it, you're a pattern that is coexistent with everything else in the universe. And so you are um, best described in these terms as conditions that give rise to you. Um, and so the name is the expression of those conditions. That's pretty much as good as I could do. That's not bad. It does the second... Part. It does uh, paragraph, I think, 45. I might have numbered these wrong. It does yeah, paragraph... Yeah, that anal person keeping track. It, it does <laughs> paragraph apologies. 45. I don't know if it does paragraph 4, because in, in paragraph 4, he says, all my thoughts are only the letters of my name, not the manifestations of those thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's now, like the manifestation would be reading the name and uh, the thoughts themselves. It's like the extent to which you're able to express your true will. Those are... Is, is, is you spelling out or reading carefully the letters of your name. My attempt to counter that is to point out that he, at that first instance, he's just finished talking about all these different uh, ways of seeing the self. So like, I am God of very God and describing essentially this is the entire universe is, is me and subject to me and I am subject to it um, and part and parcel of it but recognizing that it is separate from every other person's universe. Um, so we could think of it as the thoughts in this case, my thoughts, my universe is consistent of my thoughts because it is essentially an extension of my own mind because my universe consists of everything that I am capable of experiencing or thinking or, um, yeah, all that sort of thing, all that good stuff. Um, when I was... My name is Michael. Nice when to meet I you. when I was uh, acting, I was Leonard Scott Collins. Uh, I have various aspiration names. At times, when I've been doing music, I've been watered down and stuff as well. Like these are names. The name watered down, incidentally, wasn't. Uh... <laughs> uh, well, both. <laughs> the idea was that it was both. Um, uh, but the um, uh, uh, is is the idea that this is like. 
my own secret name, you know, like the way a demon has a secret name. And if you call mm. it by name, you can control it. Or like, I was wondering if this is the name of the HGA somehow, or um, I was even thinking of it as being, you know, if we're, if we're gods and there's the, um, there's the, this, we read the circumstances and our thoughts and something about the relationships of thoughts, the circumstances is the true name. Then maybe something like the Shamham Farash, like mm. the divided name of God. And you call all these little angels and organize them. And, and uh, that reveals divinity to you somehow. Um, so I don't know. I, I can't ask. I, it's not fair to ask you. <laughs> what he's talking about. <laughs> but I guess I wanted to get those it possibilities does, on the table. It does seem to pertain to that idea of like the, uh, this whole thing that we mentioned earlier of um, you're in Thelema, the whole idea is that you're um, attempting to learn and do your true will. And in that process, you come to encapsulate your true will in as concise a way as possible. And I think when you can get to the point of having just a name, your true will, if you, th if you conceptualize it as the conditions that give rise to you, then the name expresses all those conditions simultaneously, almost like yod heh vav -Hey. If you could find the right pronunciation, it would destroy the universe. Yeah, the formula of the true will is like a thesis statement, right? Mm. Famously, Crowley's was uh, to, to teach, teach the, the next, next step. step. <laughs> uh, that was cute. Um, uh, but uh, the the true will expressed in full would be like the complete biography of the individual, right? Mm -hmm. Because all, uh, all the events and all the influences and all the thoughts and all the different expressions. So the name is like, at least here, it looks like the letters in the name are like the full expression of the, yeah. of the individual. Uh, or the full expression of the will of the individual. The biography par excellence. <laughs> <laughs> Can I read us out? Yeah, there's the... Uh, would you like to read that final paragraph to give us that thesis? I had, I had it started with, He who invoketh often beholds the formless flame with trembling and bewilderment. But if he prolong his meditation, he shall resolve it into coherent and intelligible symbols, and he shall hear the articulate utterance of that fire, interpret the thunder thereof as a still small voice in his heart, and the fire shall reveal to his eyes his own image in its own true glory, and it shall speak in his ears the mystery that is his own right name." This, then, is the virtue of the magic of the beast 666, and the canon of its proper usage, to destroy the tendency to discriminate between any two things in theory, and in practice, to pierce the veils of every sanctuary pressing forward to embrace every image. For there is none that is not very Isis, the inmost one with the inmost. Yet the form of the one is not the form of the other. Intimacy exceeds fitness. He therefore who liveth by air, let him not be bold to breathe the water. But mastery cometh by measure to him who with labor, courage, and caution giveth his life to understand all that doth encompass him, and to prevail against it shall increase the word of sin is restriction. Seek therefore righteousness, inquiring into iniquity, 
and fortify thyself to overcome it. There, uh, there's the uh, there's the third place it says name, <laughs> and the fi- it. and the fire shall reveal to his eyes his own image, in its own true glory, and it shall speak in his ear the mystery that is his own right name. Pretty neat. Yeah, nice. That's that's the last word today. <laughs> that's the last word this week is just me going. Pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> Golly. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. That was great, Darren. This is, this is wonderful. Love is the law. Love under will. Love is the law. Love under will. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. I wonder if... No, never mind. Uh... That was a good conversation.